looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte, joined by this episode's guest, Dylan Marma of Requity. Uh, Dylan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Dante. It's great to be on the show. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, we got connected through Twitter. Um, I made a tweet out there and I said, hey, anyone that does you know, mobile home parks, and your name came up quite a few times. So I reached out to you. We uh, hopped on a call, got to know each other a little bit, and uh, now we're getting you on the show. I you know, We usually talk about multifamily, but I wanted to change it up and talk about mobile home parks, RV parks, things of that nature, just because I don't think they get talked a lot about, especially on my show. But I think they're becoming very popular. I think it's becoming sure. a, a a class that you know institutional quality investors are starting to look at, and we'll dive into that more a little bit through the show. But uh, if you want to go ahead, introduce yourself to my audience, and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure thing. So, in terms of my background, I got started full time in commercial real estate a little over five years ago, and my first three or so years we're really just bootstrapping uh, multifamily, right? So uh, any mostly focus on multifamily and that's great because that's where I got my start. So I'm really used to using that as kind of my baseline. And I feel like anything I've learned about real estate has been built off that over time, but started off with a joint venture after getting into a few single family homes, got into a joint venture on 21 units. And uh, shortly after, uh, you know, met some partners that had a bit of experience and I came in as sort of the young, hungry sweat equity and, I understood the ins and outs on how to raise investor capital and you know was really focused on helping us scale. And uh, together we worked on about 800 doors of multifamily. Um, at the time I was living in Tennessee in the Southeast and initially from upstate New York. And uh, yeah, just was a great, great start to learn the business. Uh, we self-managed everything we did. So since then I've always been a huge believer in being integrated and handling the property management side of things in-house. And after um, after you know a few years of doing that, got to a point where my partners and I had different long-term objectives, and I wanted to really continue to grow with our investor base that we'd built. And I also wanted to really broaden uh, my focus a little bit in the sense of be, beginning to look around and you know look at other asset classes. And at the time, it just didn't make sense to me how when I really learned about the underlying risk, and the fundamentals of mobile home communities didn't make sense why there was maybe a 200 basis point spread between where you know workforce multifamily was trading and where mobile home communities were trading. So to me, it just looked like a bargain. And we ended up go, getting into the space and purchasing quite a few communities. And that eventually led us into RV campgrounds, which are very similar in the sense that these are both true land lease businesses where we're simply just leasing out the land and really just managing the community itself and the utility infrastructure. So you know, today we currently sit about two and a half years into forming Requity. We sit at about a little over 800 sites of mobile home manufactured housing communities, and then about a little over 1200 sites of RV communities, RV campgrounds. And uh, yeah, it's been a good good run so far, a little over 50 total people, most of that being property management, of course, because it takes a team to get these things to run well. And then get a you know small 
corporate team as well that is, you know, helping with everything from acquisitions to investor relations and asset management and things like that. Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate that. And lots to unpack there uh, with Requity and what you guys are doing with mobile home parks, RV parks, what markets are you really focusing on and, and what is that reason for that or those markets or that yeah. market? Well, similar to you, we love the great state of North Carolina, and that's where we've built the bulk of our portfolio um, with over 1,200 sites along the coast. I think we're at 1,400 or so in North Carolina, followed by Tennessee, secondly, and then we have one asset in Kentucky and one uh, few assets here in Florida. Um, and uh, we're, we're mainly Southeast focused, but we are also looking at branching out maybe into the Midwest and surrounding states as well. Yeah, there's so many, uh, so many benefits, opportunities in those southeast states. That's why we're located there. That's why we target those markets, and that's why, like you said, you now live in one of them. So I think that's pretty cool. And you know, mobile home parks—they're they're so interested to me, interesting to me because people that don't really understand, you say mobile home parks, you think of trailer trash, you think of these rundown places with cars up on blocks, and you know people running around and wife beaters and their shirt off kind of thing is, is what people think typically. And oh, yeah. uh, just today, one of my clients slash investors. So a gentleman I know up in New York, he had a portfolio of multifamily properties. I met him a few years ago over the last few years, I've sold off his entire portfolio. He's rolled over the capital with us into our multifamily deals in North Carolina. And he just called me today and he's like, you know, we, we chat all the time. He's in his uh, late sixties, but we still chat all the time. And he's like, hey, you know, I just bought a, a mobile home yesterday. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, I, I bought a spot down in Florida. So I went down to Florida, saw a place and I bought it. And, you know, he's like, that's going to be my winter, you know, escape. And he okay. sent me uh, a link to it. And he sent me the lot number that he ended up getting or whatever in the price. And he's like, this is the place I ended up getting. And I was like, oh, this is like really nice. Like that, this place has hardwood floors. It, it's like it's a nice property and it's a nice location in this community you kind of look at the first picture when you go to the website, it's got a pond right there and you can go to the pond. They've got uh, spots for the uh, golf carts under little awnings for each of, or like carports and each of the, the, you know, the mobile homes and you go down and it's, it's beautifully paved with these driveways. They have small lawns and landscaping and it, and it's pretty cool. So I always think there's a, a misconception with that asset class, but um, yep. high level, you were kind of saying, Hey, you guys are essentially the landowners and you, you lease the lots and you maintain the utilities. Can you dig into a little bit more of what that ownership actually looks like? Yeah, sure thing. Well, yeah, I definitely would echo that there's a huge misconception. I think growing up in upstate New York, I just had a general sense of most mobile home parks I saw were probably more closer to the stereotypical trailer park that, you know, many people do think of. I think it largely depends on your upbringing and kind of where you grew up as well as, as it's very, I think it's quite a bit different in the Southeast on average than yeah. it is as you go further North. Um, you have a lot nicer communities generally down here. Um, that's at least what I found. And in you know, Florida, yeah, we're seeing, we're still seeing deals listed for sub four caps that wow. kind of fit the description of what you just discussed of, you know, we're talking, you know, three, three and a half cap going in from 55 plus, you know, um, senior communities, just because those are some of the most sought after assets uh, out there. And, you know, Florida has been competitive as a whole, just because it's been, you know, one, it's, it's really where all the snowbirds are coming. And then um, the, the two big REITs, ELS and Sun, which are the largest owners of mobile home communities, they, they've been buying up Florida since like the early 2000s. Uh -huh. um, so getting in more into, you know, your point of, yeah, what do we do to manage the community itself? Uh, we 
we go in and actually coming from the apartment background, a lot of our early communities had heavy park owned home component, meaning that we actually owned a lot of the homes early on. But generally our objective is whether we own the homes initially or not, it's usually to off to the homes off because to us, the homes just mean ongoing CapEx. You might be able to do slightly more revenue, but you're going to have a lot more CapEx, and a lot less stability in your revenue because generally once you sell a home off, the average length of stay is 15 to 20 years. To wow. me, that was a light bulb moment because the average apartment stay is two or three years. And then you're spending, you know, five grand every single time someone moves out on you know, turning it over and it adds up over time with, with all the you know ongoing CapEx. So you have a really, really sticky uh, resident base at the point where you've sold off the home because they have skin in the game. It's going to cost thousands of dollars to move the home. They're, they have pride of ownership. And, you know, our goal is to really create a community around this. So we go in, um, sometimes the residents mow their own lawns, sometimes we end up mowing the lawns, but we like to really put a good emphasis on landscaping, put up good signage, put up, you know, fencing where we see fit for decorative fencing, dog parks, playgrounds, renovating the office, adding street lights, uh, adding cameras, focusing really hard on security. A lot of the times we're buying off groups that have owned it for decades and didn't have any screening procedures prior to us. So we have to kind of weed out the bad eggs and, you know, help put some quality quality control in place with everything from our credit screening to our background checks to our sex offender checks and you know all of the core things that we would do and you know more professional multifamily management um so we're you know going in and uh, really just trying to enhance the quality of guests and trying to make everyone feel safe and you know again just trying to give the place a nice facelift um and i've always found that on these communities generally people are extremely appreciative of that so when you go in and um you know after a lot of times we've just we've had just kind of burnt out landlords and they have in many cases kind of mistreated their residents so when we're going in and actually showing that we're caring and making an impact um and then you know if you follow that up with you know rental increases and bringing it closer to market people generally are happy to pay it because they feel like they're getting equal or more value for what they're uh for what they're getting in return right and we, we've shown them that we're not just here all, all talk and we're here to really like dive in and you know create a community out of this thing and what we'll, we'll do uh back to school events all kinds of holiday events right i mean just just for us i think that's that's really where we add kind of our secret sauce i guess is just like you know really just taking a lot of the things that we learned a lot of us have multi-family background and um putting that into like the the different touch points um throughout the day yeah no i i love that and so for myself, I don't know a lot about mobile home parks, mobile home park investing, and a lot of investors don't. A lot of investors know your typical multifamily investing. So it seems like the basis of the investment and where the money is made is you guys, like you said, are the landowners and you're leasing out these lots or these yep. uh, parts of the parcel, or just you can call them lots, to yep. homeowners that are going to put that mobile home park on the lot and just pay you lot rent. That's really the, the revenue source there. That's correct? Yeah, it's almost exclusively on traditional mobile home community. It's almost exclusively lot rent as your main source of income. Then you'll have billbacks if you're billing back utilities, uh, just like you would any other investment. So that's the that's the bulk. And and usually because you don't have all the ongoing RM, you, you run a little bit of a lighter expense ratio, depending on sure. the community, down as low as you know thirty five percent or so um, for your expense ratio at the point you're in an all tenant owned home community. Sometimes I've seen them even lower. It just depends on kind of what the market rent is. Um, and that goes uh, that goes a long way. That so that's one of the major draws, right? Because at that point you have really steady income and consistent NOI growth. And they've shown, I believe it's 
asset class that shows some of the highest NOI growth over time, um, compounding as a result of that, which is why all the institutional money has been pouring in. And then the other big driver, especially for us, where we partner with, mainly with high net worth investors, the other big driver has been the tax advantages. Um, mm -hmm. The depreciation benefits have worked out to be substantial. We found greater than most other commercial real estate asset classes, where for every dollar invested back when we had 100% bonus depreciation, we were seeing over a dollar of loss year one. Interesting. So really, really high um, depreciation, just given the way the tax code is written. So how are you able to take depreciation on an asset like this? Because you don't really physically, you know, to someone that knows depreciation and myself, I say, okay, it's the building. We back out the land, we're depreciating the building, but it seems like you own the land, not any of the actual uh, structures. So how does that work? Kind of, you know, quick. Exactly. And that's, that's always the million dollar question, right? And that's where everyone scratches their head when they hear this. Um, I'm scratching my head right now when you yeah, said that. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's the same thing for mobile home and and uh, very, very similar for RV campgrounds, um, especially depending on the tenant makeup. But um how it works is that generally you're buying, you're not in primary locations, you're in more of like secondary tertiary locations and the land itself doesn't hold that much value. So the land itself might be, let's say 15% of the total value of the purchase price. You know, say you're buying things at 40,000 a lot. If you were to build them today, just to build the infrastructure, the roads, put up the signage, to put up the, to run the water, the sewer and the electric lines and put up the pedestals, mm. that itself would be the bulk of that $40,000. So, so maybe 85% of your basis um, falls under, you know, depreciable categories. And now that you've you know, got that 85%, you look at what is the makeup of it? Oh, well, it just happens that a lot of it is five and 15 year buckets. And there's very little of it that fits into that 27.5 year bucket, which is right. the bucket that get the bonus depreciation. So the vast majority of your depreciable basis falls into those shorter uh, depreciation buckets, the shorter time frame buckets, meaning that they either depreciate on a much faster schedule or well, we've been blessed with bonus depreciation we're able to take that all up front year one, leading to substantial. So it's just really the way the tax code's written. It doesn't, I, I agree with you that it's hard to fully make sense of it in the sense of, you know, you look at the actual useful life and breaking it down, but the way the tax code's written, it's just the, the way it breaks out uh, is really favorable. Interesting. I find that very interesting, but it, very cool, very unique. So, you know, you were talking a little bit about like, if you do own a structure or one of the mobile homes on the, you know, the, one of the lots or the community, You'll fix them up. You'll sell them. Is there ever a time where, let's say, it's a, a hundred lot mobile home park, and you have ninety lots rented or leased? I guess you could say, and they have structures on them. Those other ten, you just can't get leased. Will you guys ever go out buy a mobile home, put it on there, and then try to sell it and lease that back? Is that maybe a, a value add strategy within the business? Yeah, exactly. So, if you're right, I think we're referring to what we call infilling. So, infilling is when you buy a community that often either you tear down a home because it's just in terrible shape or you yeah. just bring in it's a vacant lots. Um, so you just bring in new homes and sell them off. And 21st Mortgage uh, has, which is a company owned by Warren Buffett as a, uh, you know, ca the cash program um, there is really favorable. And there's a couple other really competitive programs as well, but there's some, some great financing options to be able to work with community owners like us to be able to finance the homes coming in. Mm -hmm. And then they might hold a note 
for the first year. So you get a year to go out and sell the home to a consumer and then they'll help with the consumer loan as well. So you don't really have to come out of pocket all that, that much to be able to effectively bring in the home and sell it. And that's, I mean, that's one of the best ways to create value because you take a vacant lot, you might pay 20 a pad for it and could be worth 40 a pad when it's when it's done, once you've, once you've done the work of selling off the home, right? So that can be a huge value add strategy. Interesting. So it's kind of like uh, I, I used to work in the dealer business and I'm totally forgetting what it was. Uh, floor plan was what it was called, where yep. the dealer doesn't really own all the vehicles on the lot. They essentially f pay a monthly fee to have that vehicle on the lot for the bank to cover the full cost of the vehicle. And then they sell the vehicle to the consumer and the consumer finances it. And now you're off the hook for um, that. The cost of that vehicle. Is that kind of like the same concept? Exactly right. Yeah. Same exact concept. Interesting. I, I think that's very cool and very unique. So, uh, so many very unique facets of the business that people wouldn't think about. Um, one, for example, is evictions. So how does that work in this business? If someone is, you know, on one of your lots, they, they've leased one of the lots, they're not making the lease payments to you, and you don't own the structure, how does that work? I'm sure it's yeah. going to differ in different states it, and whatnot. It, it's not ideal. I mean, that's probably one of the bigger downsides is that if they own the home uh, and they just simply, if if you try to enforce an eviction and they're just not willing to move their home and they just abandon their home, which sometimes will happen, that becomes extremely difficult because it becomes extremely tough to get a hold of the title and you have to go through this this lengthy process to be able to gain possession of the home in the in the event of an abandonment and maybe the so home's that, mortgage too maybe there's still a yeah. you know first lien position mortgage on the mobile home and in those cases the banks might try to work it out with you or they may just come and grab the home for themselves kind of depending on who the mortgage is uh currently held with but yeah the, that's one of the more frustrating parts about the mobile home community business i'd say the Probably the second one is private utilities. Um, mm. You know, generally when you're buying traditional multifamily, it just doesn't work with private utilities because there's just too much density for to support you know septic treatment plants or wells. Um, but yeah. with these communities, because they're generally a little bit more secondary or tertiary markets, and just the way that they're built, um, you you have a lot of private utility risk that you have to really be diligent on the front end, and you know just make sure you're comfortable understanding the ins and outs on how that all works. So I, I just, not to sidetrack us, but yeah, the eviction process can be a headache because of the nature of the business. And then the private utility I just bring up as a, as a second, you know, one of the immediate pain points that everyone should be aware of with this business. Yeah. So that due diligence period, when you guys find a mobile home park, you go under contract and you start to do your due diligence on that. What are a few like the main things you guys are checking for? Yeah. So the first big thing that we've learned is planning and zoning is number one, right? A lot of people built both mobile home communities and RV campgrounds. A lot of the times this was just some guy that was building it himself, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And, you know, because of how easy it was to add, a, you know, to run some water and sewer and, you know, run another electric line, they didn't always get permitted. So mm. number one is make sure you're clear on planning and zoning and make sure that you're either grandfathered in um, or you have the proper permitting and you're, you're uh, zoned for the right, they're permitted for the, the proper number of sites because that, that itself, we spent uh, countless hours just dealing with counties and trying to you know confirm permitting. So that's, that's one of the biggest headaches that you, you know, you have to get used to in this business too, is, as I mentioned, private utilities. So you have septic tanks. Um, generally, the less septic tanks per home, the better. Um, if you have, you know, too many homes on one septic tank, that means if there's a backup, there's a huge issue and it becomes more of a catastrophe than it would be a yeah. small blip. <laughs> 
you want to have more septic tanks usually um, because it just leads to less backup and less ongoing headaches. Um, and treatment plants, treatment plants would you know basically take on a lot of density because it's a plant that's set up to be able to just like you have a county treatment plant, you have a miniature one on property that's there to service your sewer, and and that can be really costly and expensive um, if it goes south. So you definitely want to budget uh, ample amount of reserves and do an incredible amount of due diligence and find the right operator if you do have those. But you know again, that's definitely not they're definitely not for beginners and definitely something you want to get comfortable with and familiar with. Um, wells are similar in that sense. So I just bring up the private utilities again, because we've dealt with our fair share of headaches through those and definitely during due diligence. That's one of the unique parts of the asset class. Um, past that, it's just a lot of the basic stuff. I mean, you're lucky if you have a T12, uh, you know, on, on a good property management software, you're generally dealing with a ton of like, you almost have to do your own version of forensic accounting and go in and try to like piece together all these different, um, you know, payments to be able to really formulate what the true income was or, you know, what the, the true expenses were. Um, I was, I was emphasized, don't go off what the owner's expenses are definitely, you know, a lot of, I mean, it's common in every asset class, I guess, but a lot of these people are just running these places themselves. So you have to really know your numbers with your, uh, you know, how you're going to be able to staff the place and operate it long-term. Um, but yeah, I mean, aside from that, it's, it's a lot of just the standard stuff. Um, just, just getting clear, you know, just doing, checking all your bank accounts, checking all your, um, building out your rent roll, getting verification on that, um, standard, pretty standard DD process past that. Yeah. Uh, no, it sounds good. So what about utilities? So let's say you guys own the park, you've got a lot, someone, it's a vacant lot. Someone says, okay, I'm going to lease this lot from you. I'm going to bring in my, my, you know, my structure. How does utility hookup work? Do you guys have a staff, a staff maintenance person that comes through and takes care of the hookups as a third party? And do you charge the, you know, a, a setup fee or a utility hookup fee? What does that look like typically? Yeah. So it's actually less, it's actually less common that people just bring in their own home on mobile home communities. Um, it's, it's more common that we end up buying the home and selling it to people from outside of the community. So at that point, yeah, we're usually using third parties to come in and, and basically pay them to set up the home and connect the utilities. And then we're just building it into our, our sales costs at that point in time. But utilities gotcha. utilities can be direct build, similar to multifamily. Sometimes it's direct build right to the resident. And then sometimes it's a bill back. And usually on any time we have on a mobile home community, and it's a master meter, we go and work with the company Metron is a really popular one. There's a few out there that will come and install meters that will allow us to automate the bill back process and get yeah. the measurement each month to, to enforce the bill back. Yeah. Interesting. No, that's good. And what about like lending options? So when you guys go to buy a mobile home park, is it, you know, someone might say, oh, okay, you're just buying land. So is it going to be cash or are there certain lenders out there that will lend on mobile home parks? And what does that typically look like? I can't imagine you're going to Freddie and Fannie to get loans for this kind of stuff. So actually, on traditional manufactured housing, Fannie and Freddie are they give great loans um, to for, for to, the homes or the whole park. No, just for the real estate, not the homes. So they won't lend. On the, most banks won't lend on the homes. They just don't value them. They look at them as depreciating assets, and they just don't want much to do with them. There are yeah. third party options that are a little bit higher interest rate that will do what we call chattel loans or you know home loans. But uh, generally, we're, when we're talking about we're sizing up a deal, the banks want to see what's the lot rent and what is the what are the expenses associated with the lot rent. They don't care what the home rent is if you have homes that you're renting on there. They don't right. want to see what it's almost like two separate businesses. They want to look at the lot side of things, and that's so you'll actually rent not only the lot but the structure out too sometimes. 
sometimes we do and we always bifurcate it so you see what the home rent is versus the lot rent because the bank wants to see higher lot rent and they don't really care as much what what our home rent income is right so we right, have communities right. where we over half the homes are we have one that's you know 260 sites and we still have probably 150 park-owned homes that we're getting income from but we're going to be selling wow. those off over time right so uh, yeah, the, the banks look at it like that. You have Fannie and Freddie, but the, Fannie and Freddie is very particular. So if you own a lot of the homes, they don't want to do uh, deal with you. But if you if you own less than, I think it's roughly less than 30% of the homes. So you have to basically have it mostly be a tenant owned home or resident owned home community. Then they'll look at it. If all the driveways are paved, they'll look at it. It has to be a certain quality for Fannie and Freddie to get involved. Um, generally, aside from that, a lot of times we go in with bank debt. You have some national banks that really specialize in the product and love it. And um, that's usually recourse, but you can get some still some pretty attractive terms, which are great for going in and adding value before you refi into, say, Fannie or Freddie. Um, and then you also have local banks, but local banks are really hit or miss because some of them just don't understand the asset class. So you really want yeah. to have banks that understand the asset class. Whereas the RV campgrounds are different because you, you don't get Fannie or Freddie because they're, they're not really meant for living situations. It, they're more seasonal, it seems like, or maybe, you know, tourist kind of yep. spots, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. No, that, that's that's all very interesting. And so it seems like the, you know, from this conversation so far, the value add component is uh, increasing the community and security, uh, cleanliness, uh, the actual physical appearance of the community itself, and then increasing lot rents with the, you know, the quality of the, the services they're getting in the community itself. Does that sound correct? Pretty much that simple, right? And then sometimes you're adding, just like you said, you're adding homes in, filling in any vacant lots. And then if you have any homes, you might be selling off the homes and that, that itself can create kind of a cap rate compression in some ways. So that's that's a business. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it seems complicated, but it's kind of dumbed down. And I can't imagine, you know, if you've been doing this for a few years, the price of putting mobile homes on these lots have increased drastically with the uh, the prices in the last few years during COVID. Is that correct? So they definitely spiked up crazy high during COVID. And I frankly haven't, I wasn't involved or really pursuing any infill deals because supply chain made it take over a year to get, uh, wow. you know, to get a home in. And it was just so unpredictable. And, and the market was getting so competitive because everyone was flocking to affordable housing. So yeah. um, I found the infill deals to be not the best risk adjusted return. And the, the prices went from, you know, 45 grand to 65 grand. Instead of it coming in a few weeks, it could take a year. But now we've actually seen it re revert back closer to norm. So we've actually seen home prices come back down to very, not, not exactly where they were pre-COVID, but close enough to where it's it's a material discount and you're seeing runway take, you know, back to maybe a few weeks or so, thanks to the supply chain normalizing a little bit. So now we're definitely pushing hard. We, we got new homes for like four of our communities in the last month or so, and uh, def definitely pushing hard to get homes sold now. So that, that's interesting that you're saying during COVID when supply was out like a year, you weren't looking at infill deals where there was too many vacant lots. You were looking for lots that already had structures or mobile homes on them and able to rent those, correct? Yeah, coming from the apartment background, we were we were sort of the black sheep that really enjoyed uh, the park owned home communities because yeah. everyone just didn't want anything to do with anything with them. But we said, hey, it's not that much different than staffing an apartment building. You just got to get a couple full time maintenance guys to handle the turns, and then just instead of renting, you offer either rent to own or a cash sale option, and you go out and you sell it off. So that's really where we made our bread and butter in this space, and we, we found we were most competitive. So, what does it look like for an investor that wants to invest with you guys? If is it 
you guys find a mobile home park, you put it in our contract, you, you start raising capital just like a normal deal. But is it you raise the capital, you add the value, and then you plan to exit it in four to six years? Or what does the typical business plan look like and what makes it attractive for investors? Yeah, so so we did a few smaller funds, you know, up to ten million dollar fund sizes. Um, and right now, just with where the market is and kind of the uncertainty of this first half this year, we're we're just doing deal by deal for now. Um, but our business plan remains generally the same. It's generally to go in, find good value add, you know, ninety five percent of the time off market properties that we can create. Uh, create value in, in the first two years, then refinance and then hold long-term. Um, we, we found a lot of our investors are here for the tax advantages and, and the ones that aren't, I guess they, they align with us in the fact that they generally are okay with, you know, being long-term um, in the deal. And I think because of the nature of the asset class to where you, know, you don't have all the crazy sort of CapEx surprises after a certain point in time and you're stabilized, um, it, it makes for a pretty good hold past that point. So that's been our business plan for the most part. I don't want to say we're holding forever, but you know, we have sort of an indefinite time period where the main goal is to get the investor their money back in those first five years. And then we we generally offer very standard sort of terms like, you know, seven pref, 70, 30. That's generally what we've done up to date. So pretty standard terms of, you know, what most of the market offers in different asset classes. So and something you said that was pretty interesting was value add with the, you know, the intention to refi and hold indefinitely, which usually you hear value add with, you know, the plan to sell in four to five, six years. So like you said, a big point of that is you don't have these big CapEx surprises. Once that's stabilized, it can be pretty clean. You get the money back to investors. What does the typical cash on cash return look like for an investor, maybe before the refi, or is there not that much because you're putting all the value into it? And then once you refi, you know, what's a typical cash on cash look like or an investment uh, return look like for an investor? Yeah. So on traditional mobile homes, it's definitely can't come down a bit. You know, you used to be able to walk into 8% year one, and now you're probably walking into, I don't know, five or six generally, if it's, uh, you know, kind of middle of the fairway type of a deal, um, yeah. maybe lower if it's heavy lift. Um, and then you're going to drive, you know, drive the value and probably get it up to stabilize maybe, I don't know, nine, you know, eight or 9%. We try to get to, up to 10% um, cash on cash at stabilization pre-refi. And, you know, that's about where mobile home communities are. Maybe after your refi, it goes back down to six, you know, depending on the loan. And then with RV campgrounds, you're seeing significantly higher on long-term RV campgrounds that are mostly annual site agreements. You, you probably will stabilize somewhere in that, you know, 10 to 12 range. Whereas, you know, the shorter term campgrounds that are more transient that, you know, have a little bit more volatility to them. Uh, you're generally targeting somewhere more in like the mid teens um, range on cash on cash for stabilization. So, they're higher yield, but it, it's not as sticky of a tenant base. Your tenants aren't staying there for- It's a riskier profile, you know. You, right. So, yeah, no, I, I think that is very interesting. And something else you mentioned was, you know, you use the buzzword off market. You're saying like a lot of the deals you guys look at is off market. So would you say these are sourced direct to owner or are they broker off markets? Or where are you guys sourcing a lot of your deals from? Yeah, we, we source about half of our off market deals we probably do. I think to date we've done out of eighteen deals, sixteen uh, off market and two that hit the market. Um, and out of those eighteen, I, I want to say roughly speaking, half of them were were direct to owner. Either you know we have a guy that does about hundred cold calls a day, and you know wow. we actively have our database that we we monitor and try to you know keep a good pulse on what's going on through our direct to owner marketing. And then uh, the the other half, you know, probably could even be like. 
up to two thirds from brokers off market. We get a lot of deals off market through brokers and um, it's a pretty small space and, you know, we have good relationships with the brokers. So uh, generally, you know, by the time it hits the market, we've seen it before. So uh, we, we see a lot of good deals off market through brokers and I don't, I find it's a, it's a pretty broker, like bro brokers and the buyers are really working together, you know, same, same objective. And it's not really quite as competitive where you have like super aggressive call for offers and hard money day one and things like that. It just, it hasn't quite made its way uh, to this space entirely. Yeah, no, that's good. Would, a, would you say a lot of these owners that are direct to owner is more mom and pa, I would imagine style mm -hmm. owners? Yeah. The, the the vast majority of deals we've done, they are true mom and pop owners that have owned it for 20 plus years, many of them since the inception of the community. There's only a few that we've purchased off that you know have different stories than that. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I like that. No, th this has been great. I mean, you, you've dropped a, a lot of info and I think this would be a really good uh, episode for someone to listen to if they literally know nothing about mobile home parks. Cause I feel like this was very like high level. This is what the investment is. And again, you're, you know, you're talking to a, a multifamily guy. That's all I know. That's all I've ever done. So this is, this is pretty interesting to me. Um, Dylan, anything else you want to uh, mention or something that the listeners should know before we go to our next section of the show? Yeah. Yeah. I would just, just, um, Basically say, just focus on getting educated first and foremost with either of these investment types. Mobile home communities are different than campgrounds. I know we, we mainly focus on traditional manufactured housing. That's usually what I'd encourage you to start because it's a little bit simpler and easier to wrap your head around, whereas campgrounds can be a little bit more dynamic in the way that they work. But we also find it's a little bit easier to source true mom and pop deals there right now. It's just not quite made its way to be as competitive. So uh, just know that there is a difference and you know, make sure that you really kind of uh, do, do your do your math and, you know, understand the numbers well. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, let's head over to our next section of the show. We call the curious cues. I'm going to throw some questions at you. We ask all the guests and we'll get your answers. You ready? Awesome. All right. First question, favorite podcast you enjoy listening to? Well, of course it's my own podcast, Equity Insights. Um, <laughs> I have to plug that. Um, but aside from that, I've been on a big Huberman kick. The, uh, you know, the health, um, I think he's a, psychologist maybe neurologist um i probably probably totally slaughtered that but you know really awesome health podcast that i definitely recommend plugging in huberman lab awesome yeah we'll have to check that out favorite book you enjoy reading i think the biggest one that's made an impact on me in the last few years has been principles by ray dalio i uh, really just like the way that he breaks down his thoughts on life and business into applicable principles and it's really helped give me a sort of a paradigm shift of how I can think about how to handle recurring situations. Yeah, that's good. Biggest hurdle in real estate you've had to overcome. The biggest hurdle in real estate, I I'd say the biggest issue that I think many people learn early on in their careers is always expect the unexpected and budget heavily for the unexpected. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know early on generally, Really the easiest mistake to make and something I always stress is just just make sure you when you whenever you think you've fully funded your deal and you've got enough reserves add some more because mm -hmm. things will come up it's a capital intensive business so be prepared for that yeah I've been I've been seeing a, a good amount of capital calls happening lately and that's just because you know syndicators didn't budget they didn't put enough aside and uh they didn't look at their numbers properly you know uh one, one syndicator was we didn't know taxes were going to go up. What, what do you mean you didn't know, you know, property taxes were going to go up? That's uh, 
Yes. It's a pretty known fact. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Favorite non-real estate related hobbies. What do you like doing in your free time? I'm big reader. Um, I enjoy reading uh, and exercise. I'm pretty, pretty boring outside of that. So that's my, my, my two things to keep me sane. <laughs> us, us real estate guys, we're, we really just, we're into our real estate. That's just how we are. Yeah, exactly. What, what, what else is a hobby when you have real e estate? Exactly. And uh, newbie advice. So what advice would you give to someone that's looking to get started in the mobile home, home park business? I know you said, you know, just start to really learn the business, but maybe something uh, uh, a little bit more honed yeah. into the mobile home park side. I would just focus on getting in the game. I'm a huge believer in, you know, don't think about what's what's in it for me on the first deal and don't think about, um, you know, making it big, making the big bucks on your first deal or anything like that. Just just focus on your growth and your own personal experience first and foremost for, you know, your first few years. I feel like forever that is probably a good focus, but um, definitely in the beginning, just, just get in the game and start to experience it. It's a delicate balance where, you know, you don't want to lead on the side. You don't want to be too aggressive, but you also don't want to be sitting there, you know, for years and sort of analysis paralysis. And, you know, you, the, once you start tasting that kind of first deal and you taste the cash flow, it becomes real. And that's probably the most exciting part of it. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, Dylan, this has been phenomenal. Really appreciate you carving out some time, chatting with me, chatting with my listeners. If you don't mind, just letting the listeners know if anyone wants to get in contact with you, talk to you more, more about mobile home park investing or even investing with you. Where can they get in contact with you? Yeah, sure thing. Well, it's great to be on the show. And um, you can reach out to me. LinkedIn is probably the platform I'm most active on. And if you want to visit our website, it's therequitygroup.com. That's like equity with an R. And uh, you know, feel free to reach out and set up a call or jump on our uh, newsletter list. I'd love to connect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dylan. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Dante. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.